Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Now look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. This week we are back with our bonus episode of our Vincent Minnelli Marathon. Film number two, Meet Me in St. Louis, just one year after Cabin in the Sky, the movie we discussed last week with the great Michael Phillips, wonderful perspective from him. Before we get to our chat about Meet Me in St. Louis, we remind our listeners that this marathon is presented by our partners at Mubi. Josh, an algorithm has no business choosing your films, though an algorithm may have more insight about A Wrinkle in Time this week than me. Mubi is a curated online cinema streaming exceptional films from around the globe. Each day, they introduce a new gem, and you have one month to watch it. Whether it's a timeless classic, a festival darling, or an acclaimed masterpiece, each film was hand Selected by experts. Plus, you can delve deeper into the films with exclusive interviews, video essays, and critical reviews on Mubi's Notebook. And they've got some intriguing films for film spotting listeners this week. A couple of the highlights that we want to mention include films by a director who was recently a film spotting marathon topic. That's right, Luis Bunuel. Mubi has 1977's That Obscure Object of Desire, which we did include as part of the marathon, one we both enjoyed quite a bit. This is his final film, and it concerns an aging French widower who falls in love and lust with a seductive younger woman. The catch here, of course, famously, that character played by two different actresses, mm-hmm. Carol Bouquet and Angela Molina. Fernando Rey, the great yes. actor there. In so many of the good Luis Bunuel films. Also at Mubi is 1969's The Milky Way. In the film, two French beggars, present-day pilgrims who are en route to a Spanish holy city, serve as narrators for an anti-clerical history of heresy. The film assembles a stellar ensemble cast to take aim at the legacy of organized religion through an array of unforgettable comedic scenarios. Wow, that doesn't sound like Bunuel at all. The Milky Way, I remember one I did consider as I was assembling our list of possible marathon movies, and we just weren't able to get to it. But if you liked many of those films from the marathon, we do encourage you to check out Movie, M-U-B-I dot com slash film spotting. Let's get to the music. Let's get to the Minnelli. Meet me in St. Louis, Louis. Meet me at <laughs> Don't tell me the lights are shining any place but there. We will dance the hoochie-coochie. I will be your tootsie-wootsie. Meet me in St. Louis. Meet me in St. Louis, Louis. I'll be out in a minute, Agnes. 
Meet me at the fair. Well, we don't have Michael Phillips back with us this week, but we are going to hear from someone who joined us on our previous initial Manelli episode. It's Nathaniel with another voicemail. Hey guys, Nathaniel from South Bend. Thought I'd throw in a few thoughts on Meet Me in St. Louis. So after Cabin in the Sky last week, I guess I was expecting to discover more of the kinds of intricate tracking and crane shots we saw in that film's final scene. And while I did find the, for example, horizontal tracking shots through the packed trolley to be fun and pretty skillful, I think I was actually more impressed by the less flashy, more modest moments of this film. I'm thinking about the still camera through the window during Judy Garland's performance of Have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas. But the moment I think I might have most responded to was the duet between the father and the mother. You and I, I think it's called. The scene follows uh, the blowout at dinner after the dad drops the news that he's taken a job in New York and the father and mother are left by themselves because everyone else is scattered around the house upset by the news. The mom then moves to the piano and she begins to play. The dad asks why she starts that specific song, but we quickly get a sense through the tone and lyrics that it's a song about a couple, enduring hardships, good times and bad. And this clearly resonates with their current situation. But I love in particular the way the mom, played by Mary Astor, is just, she's so loving to him, even as he's become this kind of momentary villain for everyone else. She takes the music down a few steps so he can hit all the notes, and then at one moment, she feeds him the first words of what will be the next stanza. that she gives him these lines, but just that she knows to give him these lines. Meanwhile, the camera isn't doing anything fancy, and then in the background, the family begins to gather and join them. I'll admit that I was really worried the whole family was going to break out into song together, which just would have been too much, but they don't. Instead, the camera changes position, looking over the piano, And again in the background, the family sits together, tending to one another, while in the foreground, the mother and father finish the song in duet. It's just an incredible visual way to convey the resilience of that family. Anyway, so much more to say. You'll excuse me if I'm engaging in a little Sam Van Perbley, but I think you might be right. Can't wait to hear your thoughts, guys. See ya. Thank you, Nathaniel. And Mary Astor, if I'm remembering right from Sam's note on Letterboxd, a five-star review, I believe, he gave of Meet Me in St. Louis. Mary Astor, a big reason for that. He loves that performance. And in this moment in particular, what I like about it is how she's allowing her husband – he is the villain there, that's correct – but she's allowing him the chance to be the better man that she knows he can be. So that is – a really delicate moment in Meet Me in St. Louis. The story, of course, does revolve around the wealthy Smith family. Four daughters, 
They live in St. Louis. They love St. Louis, and they are eagerly anticipating the arrival of the 1904 World's Fair. Of course, the father's impending relocation throws their idyllic life into disarray. I think Nathaniel is also pointing out, Adam, something that is maybe why it took me two viewings of Meet Me in St. Louis to really appreciate it. And this is one that every once on these marathons, there will be a title that one of us has seen and the other hasn't. Mm -hmm. I first saw Meet Me in St. Louis, man, it might have been even late 90s, early 2000s as part of Chicago's Movies in the Park series. So not prime viewing conditions on a lawn chair at night. It was my first encounter with it. I think if it had some of the more signature Minnelli camera work in it, I may have been captivated and not Mm -hmm. sort of written it off as a a stuffier musical period piece. Didn't have a chance to revisit it again until just last year. It was the high school production that my daughter was in. And so I thought, perfect, perfect time to watch it again. Give it another shot. I knew you'd always... Oh my goodness. Yes. We'll get to the psychological sociopathic child that my daughter was cast as. Okay. See how you like that performance in this film. But yeah, we got together as a family and watched it again. And I liked it, of course, much better this time around. Even though I think it's a very interesting it, – it, it's almost – we'll see how two Midwesterners respond to this. It's almost pandering in the way it holds up the nuclear family mm-hmm. as the ideal – of Western civilization, and not only that, but it can only grow in the fertile ground of the Midwest, Adam, you know, where well, you and I were raised. I mean, all true. And, <laughs> and there was this, this second time around, I thought, boy, this, this is laying it on a little thick, but there were some elements to it that we'll get to that helped mitigate that a bit for <laughs> me. Why does Mr. East Coast-born Sam Van Halgren love this movie so much? I mean, I know he's been in the Midwest <laughs> a while now, it's but... It seeped into his bones. I guess. <laughs> Didn't take long. No. Well, I never get to be the hot take contrarian guy. So... Didn't like it. I'm going to don my purple Larson contrarian pants here. <laughs> They fit They fit snug, but I think they look pretty good. Purple is and maybe the one color I don't you think don't I own. Oh, come on. You know they're in the closet somewhere. <laughs> I'll say this. Meet Me in St. Louis is fine. I would love to have the, the passion for it that Sam, and I'm sure many other people do. I like Cabin in the Sky better, actually. Really? Yeah. And, of course, if you heard our discussion last week, you know that Cabin is much more problematic because of its handling of race. We discussed that in great detail with Michael Phillips. But the pleasures of Cabin were more plentiful for me, even with one magical sequence here for me, which we will definitely get to. And I agree with Nathaniel. My second favorite scene in the movie is probably that duet between Mary Astor and Leon Ames and just the delicateness of it and the love that is on display. It's very touching. And I like the song, too. So that scene really does work. There are a lot of scenes that work and there are a lot of performances that work. But it's funny. I watched it with Sophie, who I've said on the show is musicals crazy, though mainly stage musicals is what she's really into Broadway shows. And she immediately, as soon as it was over, this is what she always asks me anytime we watch a movie together. She wants to know my star rating, (laughs) which there's no question I want to answer less than what my star rating is. But I gave her just a, a little snippet of where I thought I was going with it. And I asked her, what did you think? And she proceeded to list all the things she liked, the costumes, the production design, the characters, the acting, 
the singing, I think she listed like eight things that would seem to be all of the elements that would comprise a movie. And then she added, but I didn't like the story. Mm. And I'm with her. And I know that this movie is not unique among musicals and that the focus is not on the narrative. A lot of times with these films, it's about how do we pull together just enough of a narrative to hang all those other things on it, primarily the singing and the dancing, but also the costumes and the production design and the characters. Here, we not only get that 20 or so deeply unsatisfying minutes of the Halloween sequence involving that sociopathic child, Tootie, and a series of bizarre rituals that culminate with her claiming that the guy next door, the love interest of her sister, Esther, played by Judy Garland, tried to kill her and hit her in the face. It gets really <laughs> weird. Tootie! Tootie, what have you been doing? She took the rock All alone? Yeah. What's the matter, Judy? Did the bulldog try to bite you? Did Mr. Brokaw chase you? Judy, can't you talk? I killed him! She killed him all alone. There's the fact for me that there are just really no dramatic stakes to meet me in St. Louis. What do we care about, Josh? What are we supposed to care about? Is it whether Rose, Esther's sister, is going to marry Warren Sheffield? We know as much about Warren as the father does, which is absolutely nothing. I'd love for it to be enough that she wants to marry him, that she feels that, but it's not. Their happiness simply isn't a hook for me at all. Now, Rose is a supporting player in this. This is Judy Garland's movie. We're more invested in Esther and her love interest, John Truitt, simply because they're on screen more and her longing is showcased more and they get the best sequence. Again, we'll touch on that. But I still really don't feel any more of an attachment to John than I do to Warren. He's still just the handsome boy next door. He's this object of affection. And really, if the movie ended with them not being together, would your experience of watching this movie be affected at all? I don't think it would be. So... You take those two things, which really are what this movie's about. It's about those two relationships and maybe that central relationship. Throw those out. There is this move in terms of just talking about the plot. Are they really going to give up this idyllic life? Are they going to move to New York? But by the time this move is introduced, it's very abruptly decided. And then it's reversed in a way that is very abrupt. So it does add some drama to a plot that otherwise has almost none if you really break it down. But I don't think we as viewers care. I don't think Minnelli cares about that particular plot through line. And there's some thematic stuff we could discuss maybe about the future encroaching on the past and tradition that we might get into. But I don't think any of that really delivers either. And all of this isn't to say that Garland and company don't make Meet Me in St. Louis enjoyable. But there just wasn't enough for me to cling to to make it one of those transcendent musical experiences. Yeah, it's not that for me either. I wish I was closer to Sam's experience, but I did enjoy it a bit more than you. I don't think anyone cares or should care about the romantic relationships mm -hmm. in this in this film. And maybe that is a detriment, but I don't think that is what it sets out to be about. I think this is much more it's a piece of nostalgia. It's about creating nostalgia. I mean, keep in mind that the setting is, what, about four decades earlier than when the film was yes. released. So, and this may be something you can hold against it. It is about preserving this sense of wealthy Americana mm -hmm. and the supremacy of, as I said, the nuclear family. And those are, you can look at that for suspect reasons. But I think what people do respond to and what I did respond to as well, here's where the care comes in, is that a tight-knit family like this does create a home. And mm -hmm. I think it's about 
capturing the emotional tenors of that home, the dynamics at play. And this, this is why the boyfriends don't matter because they're not part of the family yet. They're yeah. not part of the home. But the movie spends so much time All, on worrying about them. It, it, and that's the problem is that you could say there's, you know, there's no real story here, but they spend a lot of time mm-hmm. on narrative. So I think that is a fault. I think they're, though, I think they do get some good musical numbers out of those relationships, at least the one, my favorite sequence, and maybe this is what you're referring to, is the dimming of the light sequence. Yes. I think that's beautiful. It is. I think it's, you know, it, it's weird that it pulls off, and maybe this is where we can get into the skill of Manelli. Between two characters, you're right, we're not invested in their romance at all, yet I was completely invested in that moment. Mm-hmm. And the lighting scheme, the way that um, Judy Garland becomes sultry, something I I never think about in relationship to Judy Garland. Maybe I just haven't seen enough of her stuff yet. One thing I really liked about Meet Me in St. Louis is the way it opened up for me appreciation of her as an actress more. Uh, Way beyond anything in The Wizard of Oz. I don't know that I've seen her in anything. I meant to look this up besides The Wizard of Oz, which was kind of shocking for me to realize as I was watching this movie. But she comes on screen and I am, of course most people are, but I'm thinking Dorothy the whole time and I'm trying to place her in any other context. She's very different here and not only has that sultriness but also a somberness to the Mm -hmm. Esther character that I think is crucial and also a reason why Have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas has it's never sounded sadder than it does in Meet Me in St. Louis. And that's that's you know a difficult thing to pull off. So that one also is more tied to this idea of this home they've created. And how can they preserve it? Again, the question of should they? Right. But it's something that is so valuable to them that I at least get caught up in the attachment that they've given to it and can feel that as both the thematic and emotional hook that's enough to carry me through. Mm -hmm. Now, you know, in the context of the marathon, I'll say I enjoyed Cabin in the Sky just as much. I'd probably put them both on the same level for very different reasons. I think the filmmaking is maybe a little more exciting, as Nathaniel was indicating, in Cabin in the Sky. I think the performances are more exhilarating in Cabin in the Sky, even as I do appreciate Mm -hmm. Garland here. And something about that whole Halloween sequence, I mean, it makes no sense plot-wise. Yeah. It's it's deranged. Yeah. I, I mean, th- this this kid played by Margaret O'Brien, she de- does she decapitate yes. her dolls? Or no, the snowman. She buries the dolls. She, she buries the dolls. The snowman. Eventually goes on a rage rampage and decapitates all of the snowmen in the family's yard. I mean, at, at least like just when I was starting to get a little too warm and cozy in the nostalgia, at least that sequence perked me up. Like, oh, <laughs> Something something interesting is happening here. Yeah, no, I don't disagree with your take on it at all. I guess it just speaks to my own experience with it and how caught up in it I was, or in this case, I wasn't. And watching that family try to hang on to this idyllic life and that that sense of nostalgia is just something that didn't resonate with me. And even by the end of it, honestly felt false. When we get to the end of the movie and we see them at the World's Fair, Mm -hmm. which I'm still trying to piece this together a little bit, but the movie culminates with Esther saying, I can't believe it, right here where we live, right here in St. Louis, like this magical this magical glimpse of the future, but it's also a celebration of, of things that currently exist and everything that's come before. It's this convergence, I think. The fair is supposed to be this convergence of the past, present, and future, and they're in awe. I think what it is is that it's assuring them that even the future is not going to change what they've created. Yeah. It's, it's this bubble they right. managed to live within, and now 
instead of the future being on the East Coast or somewhere yes. they're going to have to go to get it, oh no, it's all going to come right there to them and and more importantly, not disrupt them. I mean, there's, there's yeah. an element of this movie that yeah. you watch it through a certain lens and it's cultish, right? It, it feels claustrophobic at times where you could say it's nostalgic and warm and homey or you might be like, get me out of this house. Mm-hmm. These, these people are too intense in their togetherness. And in that finale, when they do bring John Truitt in, it, it's like it's bringing him into the cult yes. <laughs> more than anything. Yeah. It's not, that's why it doesn't register as a romance. He's brought into the family unit. Yeah. And just the fact that she has to say that she has to express that sentiment versus us feeling it naturally versus us seeing it visually, I think speaks to at least how I was disconnected from what. Minnelli and company was trying to express there. And the whole technology aspect in general is one of the curiosities of this film or one of the things we can discuss. Anyway, the fact that the phone plays mm-hmm. such a central part, the long distance the call. plot, <laughs> the entire first half of this film is all about the fact that, well, we have to move dinner because and we have to hide this from the father because a phone call is coming during dinner time. And there's only one phone in the house and it's is right there where they eat dinner. And the fact that that family unit is all going to be around it. And then when the call is made first it's misunderstood and the father hangs up because he doesn't really know who's on the other line. And then when Warren finally gets through to Rose, they can't really hear each other and they don't really express anything to each other despite that technology. So you have that, even the trolley I was thinking about, and I don't know that it really fits into this, but we mostly see people get around via horse and buggy Mm -hmm. in this movie. It's 1904. But then there is this trolley, which at least is moving, right? And there's an accident on the trolley. And and so it makes you think that the movie is pining for this time when everyone had to be connected face-to-face to each other, to really get to know each other and to love each other and be a little bit more intimate. And there weren't things like these phones, speaking to our modern day situation, there weren't these phones getting in the way. And yet, I can't grasp onto that as something, I guess, that I care about enough. I don't care about that family trying to get over that that hurdle. See, I, I enjoy that early sequence, though, where dinner has to be moved and all the magic. It, it's yeah. like farce. It's like yeah. it's sending up the tradition they're trying to preserve and how much how much importance is placed on something like the time of dinner mm-hmm. and what it takes to, to move that up or back an hour yes. and all the machinations that come into play. So I, th- I thought that was, uh, that was pretty amusing. It does go on for quite a long time. It though. does. Now, Nathaniel mentioned the camera moving on the trolley, and definitely you can't help but notice the way we get that mostly unbroken take, or at least for a minute or two, horizontally going through the cabin of that trolley. And the skip to my loo sequence at the party at the house is another one where it's mostly unbroken, at least a good half of that sequence. And Minnelli's camera, I mean, Michael really talked about how the camera moves during those musical sequences, where it would be enough just to watch the choreography play out in a static shot, a wide shot. But Minnelli's constantly adjusting the camera. So you feel like you're always getting a different perspective. You kind of feel like you're involved in the dance as they keep moving through the living room front to back in the frame. The camera is also moving that way. So that's a great scene. But that leads up to the one shortly after it that you already hit on. I think it is by far the most fantastic scene in Meet Me in St. Louis. The song that Judy Garland ends up singing some of is Over the Banister. And what was the word you used to describe Judy Garland in the sequence? I think she's sultry. Okay, sultry. So my S word was sensual. She yeah. is at least sensual. And it 
is sensual watching John and Esther go from room to room, Mm -hmm. very deliberately, getting closer and closer to each other as those lights go out. That's as sexually charged as a movie like this gets. And I really did feel it. But where it really kicks in is that scene where she goes up to the top of the stairs. Yes. She's looking down the banister and she turns out those lights or turns them down a little bit. And Garland in that sequence is like the director of photography. She's setting a scene. She's adjusting the lights at the top of the stairs so that she can then position herself in the most advantageous position. And so Minnelli shoots her, then cuts to John at the bottom looking up at her. And his face is in this glow where she can see him and he can see her perfectly. And I love the way Garland, and you really wonder if this is something that comes naturally to Garland as a performer or if it was a beat that Minnelli as a director advised her to take and said, this scene really needs that. But I love as soon as she turns it out and she walks over and the camera cuts down to him and then cuts back to her looking at him, she pauses for a second and kind of tilts her head when she comes into the light. And this effect of them looking at each other in this moment, it really registers. It's not about just getting to the line of dialogue. It's about them really noticing each other and seeing each other literally and figuratively in a different light. And at the same time, as we see her and we get that little head tilt, the camera just subtly tracks forward on her, which just gives it a little bit more of a sweeping sensual effect. And at that moment, because of all of the lighting choices and the camera choices, we know he's in love, she's in love, we're in love. Everybody in the theater, anyone watching this movie has to be in love with Judy Garland and those two in that moment. Over the banister leans a face, tenderly sweet and, and... While below her with tender grace He watches the picture smiling A light burns dim in the hall below Nobody sees them standing Saying goodnight again Soft and low Halfway up to the landing, nobody only... And she's absolutely in charge in this performance. Yep. And maybe here is where it's such a striking contrast with Dorothy in The Wizard of Oz, where she's really just the watcher of all these fantastic things. Here, this whole scheme ploy of turning down the lights is her idea. Mm-hmm. <laughs> this this is how totally. she's going to woo him, uh-huh. right? She puts the family to bed, makes sure they're in bed. They're the last two up so she can pull this off. And it's a really throughout she's the spikiest member of this family. Mm-hmm. She's the most well, I was I mean maybe not the most interesting after Tootie, but she's <laughs> she's the has the most independent studied in a hospital later. She probably won't. And I think there's just something really exciting about watching Garland give a spiky performance Mm -hmm. like this. It's, It's just an independent spirit she doesn't have in The Wizard of Oz. I agree. And that's exactly why I think this film, in addition to those Minnelli touches and flourishes that we have discussed, is worth watching and is one I can recommend, if not quite as wholeheartedly as Sam and many others. Any other 
Any other thoughts, any other moments you want to touch on, Josh? Uh, no, I mean, I, I would just reiterate what you said about the group dance scenes mm-hmm. and point out a commonality now between the two Minnelli films we've watched is that the camera work you were describing is very much being done to showcase the performances, yeah. which seems obvious. But I think often when we think of filmmakers who move the camera a lot, it's for the sake of moving the camera to maybe call the audience's attention mm-hmm. to it or to get some sort of flashy effect. And here in both films, in those striking group dance scenes, it's been absolutely at the service of the people who are doing the dancing so that we can observe them better from a different angle, mm-hmm. capture them right when they're doing this perfect moment in their routine that we need to be in that place to see it. And so it's just a, a little more sophisticated use of the camera than maybe sometimes comes to mind when we think about filmmakers who do that sort of camera movement a lot. Yeah, I think everything about that skipped my loose sequence even before we get to the camera really moving and the performances, they're kind of going down the rows and different couples are coming down it. Just the way it's set up, the way Minnelli allows for people to enter and exit the frame, it's so graceful. It doesn't feel meticulous or really overly precise, but of course you know it was so carefully choreographed, and I'm sure we're going to get to some more of that great choreography as we get to this marathon, though probably not next week. We are going away from musicals Kirk Douglas, Lana Turner, 1952's The Bad and the beautiful that is up next. We hope you will join us. We hope you will see it. You'll do your homework and can participate in that conversation. Meet Me in St. Louis is available to rent or stream on most platforms. If you see it and agree or disagree with our thoughts, email us, feedback at filmspotting.net. Before we get to the bad and the beautiful, we're going to have our full show later this week. That's going to be a review of Ava DuVernay's A Wrinkle in Time plus Film Spotting Madness first round results. It should be fun. And we encourage you again to go to filmspotting.net slash marathons for more on this marathons. And if you want to check out the archive and see the other filmmakers and genres and world cinemas that we have touched on. For Film Spotting, I'm Adam Kempinar. And I'm Josh Larson. Thanks for listening. Film Spotting is listener supported. Join the Film Spotting family at filmspottingfamily.com and get access to ad free episodes, monthly bonus shows, our weekly newsletter, and for the first time, all in one place, the entire Film Spotting archive going back to 2005. That's at filmspottingfamily.com.